Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is Sunday, January the 28th, 2024. Earlier today, did an interesting show with the former chancellor of the University of California at Berkeley, Nicholas Dirks, who has a new book out on universities, City of Intellect, The Uses and Abuses of the University, he idealizes, at least, I guess, in his mind, the 20th century history of the university, even quoting Edward Said, suggesting that the university was a utopia in the 20th century. Um, Whenever one mentions the word utopia, of course, we always think of dystopia. And when I was talking to Dirks, I thought of another way of thinking about the 20th century American university, a Trinity uh, College scholar. Uh, a couple of years ago, Devarian Baldwin was on the show showing how American universities in his new book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, are actually devouring, colonizing American cities. There's always more than one way of thinking about things. And as it happens, Devarian Baldwin is a colleague of my guest today, Scott Gack. They both teach at Trinity College. And uh, Scott Gack is in the History Department and the American Studies Department. He has a new book out, which is exploding perhaps another myth, uh, which many of us take for granted. Uh, his new book, Born in Blood, Violence and the Making of America. Most people still thinking of the making of America in nonviolent terms, in, in, the, in the language of justice and resistance and rebellion. But Scott disagrees, and he is joining us right now. Scott, um, everybody knows, of course, about slavery and rebellion and all the rest of it. Everyone always also knows that all states are born in some form of violence or another. But are you arguing in this new book, Born in Blood, that there's a unique, a special kind of American violence which aren't, which isn't replicated in other founding nations? So yes and no. <laughs> to, uh, to 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 squirrel out of that question a little bit. Um, so you mentioned, right? You mentioned slavery. Uh, I would put indigenous colonization in there, uh, and I would put militarism, right? As kind of these three stakeholders. Uh, that for for most of us we can mark out right in this what's often framed right as this this age of revolution in the in the late 18th century and, and, and into the early 19th century um, like that these are three kind of uh, modes of violence systems of violence that uh, that we can mark out in many different places around around the globe uh, so right yeah no surprise um, but 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 what I'm asking people to 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 do in in this book is um, is to say, okay, yes, we have we have those three systems. We should layer into this, right? This this notion of uh, a notion of of, of whiteness or or white supremacy in, into these notions in some some way, shape, or form, uh, and then see how it plays out within within an American context. Uh, so so for me, the the book covers a, a large swath of of, um, of of history from from 1750 to about 1900. Uh, and and I ask I ask readers to um, to kind of think through uh, the moment of of the American Revolution in, in a variety of ways, which I'll get into. I ask them to think through the development of American democracy in in the years leading up to um, into the years leading up to the American Civil War. And I ask them then to think through 
um, the, the post-war period after the Civil War um, and, and think particularly about um, the industrial world, uh, which has bequeathed to us a, a variety of different forms of, of violence in the United States and, and in the world. Um, so, so for that beginning moment, right, the American, thinking about the American Revolution, the, the born moment, if you would, um, one of the things that, that, that I asked my, my students to, to think about, and this, this book really came out of, of, a, of a class that I've been teaching for, um, for probably about eight years. Yeah, Don't no, blame I, your students, Scott. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm totally blaming my students for this. Um, uh, trying to, uh, to, to get them to think about, well, what, what's the foundation of, of, of American nationalism, right? What, what are the binding, what are the binding ties, right? That, that bring together people, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to create and to sustain, uh, a, a rebellion, right? What, which is, you know, yeah, it, it, it's violent. Um, in, in fact, you know, most people, at least on on this side of the ocean, right, when they think of the American Revolution, they don't think of it as a terribly, uh, terribly violent or bloody event. Um, but um, but you know the the number of of people who died during the American Revolution would be equal to roughly equal to about two million persons today. Um, so it's actually extraordinarily violent. Uh, on a, if we take that, I, as I don't way. suppose this narrative in this book. You're getting a lot of invitations from Fox News. Um, <laughs> in all seriousness, the, the standard narrative, which is being critiqued, attacked, undermined, rewritten by historians like yourself now for for a while, is the notion of a relatively peaceful revolution born out of the ideas of justice and resistance against the British. In your view as a historian, was there a, a conscious effort to, to tell untruths here, to, to propagandize the revolution? Or did these people actually believe for hundreds of years what they were actually writing, the, the, the building of the mythology of the American state? I think one of the things that that happens with many nation states, but is particularly endemic to to the United States, is this process of forgetting. Um, how willful this forgetting is is something we we can debate, right? But forgetting how how violent your origin story is, uh, yeah, I think I think that's 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 somewhat typical. But it also depends on who's getting to write that story and who you're listening to when telling that story. Um, so I ask people to think about George Washington and most people are like, okay, okay, George Washington, he's, he's a slaveholder, right? I, I know he's violent. True. But I, I'm asking them to think about how does George Washington get his continental army, army soldiers to, uh, to join him in, in this effort, right? What, what, what are these bonds? Are these, these like an earlier generation of scholars said, Hey, it's the democratic ideals. This is what built, right? This is what built, uh, the, the United States. And in the book, you'll see um, the answer to that is no, right? Uh, the George Washington, quite deliberately, um, when he is made uh, general of the Continental Army in June of 1775, he changes the entire structure of what was then called the Massachusetts Army. The Massachusetts Army allowed for the actual democratic election of officers. That is, the men literally chose who they wanted to officer them. Uh, lead lead them into into battle and and Washington comes in and, and installs what might be called more of a typical European military ethos that he had learned uh, under, in in the British setting right he is from day one he is he is whipping people whipping soldiers publicly 
He is uh, instituting a variety of harsh uh, physical punishments within the Continental Army. But that's and what I you have to do as a general, uh, some people might argue. And of course, there was the reality, again, you don't need me to tell you this, that the, the British occupying force or the British Army, whatever, however you want to call them, they were made up of, of incredibly violent, if not always particularly motivated mercenaries. So how are you supposed to? How are you supposed to overthrow the yoke of colonialism, if that's the right way of putting it, if the colonizer is violent? Uh, that that would be an excellent question. Um, and one of the things that um, that uh, that I that I certainly deal with and, and argue, and this is taking me a little bit away from from where we just were, but is that a lot of the things that the colonials were were concerned about and complaining about, um, whether it it be that there are, you know, like, hey, there are lots of British soldiers around. None of the white colonials in in uh, in New England or or even in Virginia and the South complained about British soldiers when they were used to help buttress um, the slave system. They were not the, they were not targeted right when they um, helped uh, control indigenous resistance to to colonization. Um, it's only right in this in this moment after after um, the Seven Years' War and uh, where the British government starts to say, "Hey, you know what? We're going to draw a line across the Appalachian Mountains in 1765 that says no white settlers right can can cross this line um, and attempt to kind of control um, the the process of colonization settler colonization that had." You know, obviously, been been started in in the through the uh, through the empire's colonization of North America. Um, it's at that moment that you start to see this friction, and it's at that moment that these notions of uh, of trying to quote unquote get a voice in government, right, of, in, a, in a representative form, start to uh, start to, to to bubble up in in more genuine forms. Uh, and and so you know, then it becomes like. Uh, it becomes a conversation. In fact, as I think you're you're somewhat suggesting, the the it becomes a conversation through violence, right? The colonists and and the British Empire are literally trying to speak to each other um, through force. Uh, and and those moments, right? Um, I think we can point to many world examples in in our own world, right? Well, once you start to have to have conversations through force, um, you know, then 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 it's un somewhat uncontrollable, right? The the results. Well, what, are to what extent were the the American rebels borrowing inheriting the british skill in not acknowledging the violence of their own colonial endeavors it certainly was the case in india the idea that britain just acquired an empire in a fit of forgetfulness when of course the foundations of british colonialism are as violent as as any other countries in history in what sense you note that this is indigenous to America, but it must have come from somewhere. Did they learn it from the Brits? So my argument is that certainly George Washington learns it, um, learns it right. He, he he learns it from from his his British military his British military upbringing. Um, it's interesting that you know some of the works that the Americans point to, particularly in terms of. Um, small R republicanism and standing armies. Some of the works from the late 1600s that that the American rebels are pointing to, um, uh, 
they, they leave out key, key points in, in these books. Uh, Jonathan Trenchard's work on standing armies, for instance, um, celebrates British militarism in, in, um, in Ireland, right? And the use of a standing army against, against people who are, who are pushing back on, on a system. Um, the Americans totally ignore that part of the book. Meanwhile, they, 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 they use it in other contexts that, that fit their, their purpose. Uh, and so, yeah, to a, to a degree, you're talking about um, you're talking about a, a widespread system of power that they understand. Um, the the key for me uh, is that there actually is this moment, um, particularly in terms of American militarism, from the uh, coming out of a context of American militias participating in the Seven Years' War, um, that actually creates a much different model of um, of militarism that is. I don't want to call it democratic, but I would call it more democratic, right? Than the model that the British have have brought in for better or worse, because it's also probably more violent, right? It, it's it, it's well, it's 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 violent in certain ways and violent not, right? It's it's less violent for the soldiers in terms of military discipline. Um, they they had more say and more control over how how violence impacted them um, through their organization, right? Like there there there's that aspect of it. Um, but, but the American rebels at a key moment decide that that model doesn't work. Right. And, and, and to this day in the United States, we have a real celebration of militia models, right. Of, of individuals, of individual citizens. And again, citizens often indicates, I just want to harken back. Citizens often indicates white people, um, to citizens, militia, citizen militias, um, that can pick up guns, right, and and assert their their power um, somewhat at will, or at least with a government that with which they disagree. Um, and and it's interesting that that's not the model, right? That that kind of wins the Revolutionary War, right? That's not George Washington. In fact, he hates the militia because he can't discipline them um, using the the kind of uh, coercion, the the coercive tools that are available to him as general of the regular army of the Continental Army. It, you know, your, your, your thesis is obviously very controversial. Not everyone will agree. I'm sure you don't completely agree with it, with it even yourself. Um, but if it's tr mostly true, how should Americans rethink their history? Should it be in the context of shame, apologetically? Uh, or... Well, so one of the things that I'm asking people to do is to start to actually think through history using a little bit more of a kind of a systemic lens, right? To look through things as as systems, and and this is something that's been asked why broadly, right, by a lot of scholars, to think through slavery as an institution or a system, to think through colonization as slavery uh, as as an institution, to think through the liberal state as as a system that we need to uh, engage with. Um, and, and you're right, right? There's a there's a balance to, to to taking systemic looks at history, because at the same time, at the same time, and this is a, a real this is a real challenge, right? And and if you, I'll take your comment, right? That that I may not believe it myself to to indicate more this tension, right? This tension between um, understanding and evaluating individual behavior, right? And and understanding and evaluating. Um, uh, systems, which is uh, systems are ultimately right. The result of lots of different individuals kind of participating in similar ways that create, uh, create a system. Right. And so the idea of shame always is kind of a surprising question for me. Right. Cause I'm not, 
I'm not a philosopher and studying violence, you, you find yourself sometimes in odd corners, right? Of trying to evaluate, um, is it worse for a person to kind of like lose an arm or lose a leg, right? Like that, that doesn't seem to me like that, to me, that question is, is somewhat, I don't want to call it an invalid question because there is some validity to a question like that, but it's not a question that I'm going to answer. Right, they it both depends if you're a tennis player or a footballer, yeah. Right? yeah, or a runner, right? Like it's 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 it. There's a contextual aspect to that, in indeed. However, um, one of the struggles in, in writing this book and 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 trying to talk about the liberal state and and how, in particular, white people have contributed to a history of um, of the liberal state does become about accountability, right? Because I do believe quite strongly that individuals should be held accountable. At the same time, that I believe that you can see that systems um, do lead to, um, can lead to, uh, you know, systemic oppression, which would be- uh, uh, Are you story. arguing that America as perhaps the, certainly the highest profile political, cultural, economic, national profile in modernity, that the history of liberalism is somehow inevitably bound up in the history of slavery, colonization, Absolutely. Uh, the wiping out of indigenous people and this ubiquity of violence. It's, it's again, you're not the first person to no. argue it. Um, the, the Frankfurt School fell on this after the Second World War. I'm guessing you're, you're suggesting that it's not accidental that the liberal system was born out of this same cauldron of violence. No, no, it's 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 not it's not incidental. It's not incidental at all. And I, in fact, I don't think we can understand modern the modern creation and understanding of of race without understanding those those uh, you know those other pillars, right? You 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 can't uh, understand how we literally get to this moment in understanding in understanding race uh, without understanding uh, the the origins of indigenous dispossession and without understanding a slave trade um, that really do create mo again modern understandings of, of of race which which you know people are always arguing well hey there was slavery in the ancient world but and I don't want to get this book isn't about that but like this is one of the um, right this is one of the keys uh, like the the modern world the modern liberal state uh, Certainly, you know, um, Deborah, Deborah Levinson is um, uh, a Latin Americanist, and, and she uses the, the, the phrase um, uh, for, for, for the liberal state and, and notions of justice that the liberal state often offers this salvation fantasy, the salvation fantasy of liberalism, right, where, where justice is always a few years away, right? We're going to enact this, and then there will be equality for all. But we never, we thinking more about all of us who live in liberal states, we never seem to be able to achieve it, right? It's it's always just just a, a hair's breadth away. And then there's, you know, some kind of economic collapse, right? And the, the, there's no more longer the money to to do the things that that need to be done. The, the salvation fantasy um, is something that I that I take to um, quite seriously in this book. We are speaking with Scott Gack, a professor of history and American studies at Trinity College in uh, Connecticut, author of an interesting new book, very provocative. I'm not sure not all everyone will agree. Um, Born in Blood, Violence and the Making of America. I want to remind everyone that high quality guests like Scott Gack are brought to us because uh, generosity of my friends at Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics, going to run a short feature on Liberties Quarterly. And then we'll be back with Scott 
to talk about the legacy of violence, we've talked about the foundations, the origins, but how it's impacted the 250-year history of the American Republic. So don't go away, anyone. If you do, we will be violent with you. News, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking with Scott Gack, the author of Born in Blood, a, a rather dark or bloody reading of American history, violence and the making of America. Scott, last year I was at Gettysburg, of course, the site of one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. The American Civil War rewrote the history of warfare, perhaps the first real modern war. Was that incidental in terms of your thesis? No, no, not at all. In, in fact, the Civil War creates this, this, um, this incredible turning point for me because one of the things, one of the things that I think um, we in the United States have, have to grapple with um, is, is the story of the story of freedom. Um, and those of us who live still in northern states, uh, really need to take a closer and more careful look at the history between 1800 and 1860, um, which in many ways was was offered up after the Civil War, right, as this, this, this inevitable story of freedom, right? Oh, hey, the North got rid of enslavement starting, starting around the Revolution and, um, you know, then kind of turned its eye, if you would, you know, toward, toward its, its, its southern, southern neighbors, um, and and you know thus we have a we we um, we had a civil war because of anti-slavery and 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 pro-slavery positions right like that's that's the cauldron that that we have to understand uh, the the sweep of the 19th century and I just ask people hey let's take a pause for a second and and think through uh, understandings of of how the North was supported by involved with and if you would complicit right in. In, in within uh, American slavery, but also global slavery um, throughout this period, because I think it's important to be able to understand what happens after the Civil War, right? Because it doesn't become, right? We all somehow in, by 1896 and through the early 20th century, the United States is a horribly segregated society and a horribly um, uh, a system of, of, of racial segregation that, 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 that is horribly violent, right? And so how does this great moment of freedom ultimately lead to that? And um, to do that, you have to, you have to understand um, the burgeoning industry in, in, in the North, in places like in and around Hartford, where, um, where, where I work and live, um, the, the cotton factories that were you know, tied to, um, to uh, Southern cotton, for instance, the, a massive amount of trade, particularly uh, in the New England region, but particularly also in Connecticut, the massive amount of trade um, that merchants um, undertook with, um, with uh, the, the, the West Indies uh, and, and slave traders in the West Indies. It's, it's quite clear, right, that the, the West Indies, without goods from New England, without horses, right, uh, horses and, and foodstuffs, um, and and barrels from uh, from from New England, the West Indies could not right have become um, this this massive uh, site of of wealth in the Atlantic world, 
And so, you know, it's kind of grappling with two sides to to a story because, oh, hey, wait, there's also some there's great pushback against against in uh, against enslavement throughout the early 19th uh, century, um, particularly coming out of New England. And so, one of the things that I that I often say is we have to start to realize that anti-slavery is not anti-racism. In fact, one of the most popular forms of anti-slavery in the United States is the colonization movement, and this does not refer to indigenous colonization, right? But rather, um, it, usually the term would come up as African colonization. That is the removal of black bodies from the United States. Um, and, but your and book, Scott, is not, I mean, the, so much has been written on slavery and you you do write about it, but your book is about violence rather than slavery or race. Sure. And so one of the things that this all leads to, right, is, is understanding that Throughout the first, say, let's call it 60 years from 1800 to, well, 1800 to 1863, um, the United States government, the, the military capacity of the United States government is fully in support of um, enslavement and enslavers. And the one of the reasons why um, we, can, we can point to the Emancipation Proclamation as being transformative is actually not because of its... Uh, uh, it's 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 gesture toward toward freedom, right? Toward the ending of of uh, of slavery in places that the Union controls, but rather uh, uh, a different part of that pro proclamation, which is its acceptance and call for for black soldiers within the Union military and the protection of black freedom by and the the declared freedom, uh, sorry, the declared protection of freedom of black individuals, uh, formerly enslaved black individuals by the Union Army. That is transformative because even, even as late as 1859 with uh, John Brown's raid, the American military then in terms of John Brown's raid uh, under, um, under the auspices of Robert E. Lee is fully in support of, of American enslavers. And in 1863, right, we see this massive transformation um, the, uh, of the U.S. government, uh, this massive pivot um, toward, um, toward supporting uh, black equality and black freedom. That gets undone um, in the 20 years after the Civil War. No, this was uh, last week I was in Mississippi. I was at the uh, Civil Rights Museum in, in Memphis and of course, that's another horrible stain on American history. Let's fast forward. We don't have much time left, sure. Scott. You, you don't just focus on the 19th century. You make sense of America being born in blood in terms of its broader history, gun culture, the West, Hollywood, the death penalty, um, rampant individualism. Is, In your view, is this cult of violence or the centrality of violence, is this, are these the dots that make sense of American history when people try to understand why and how it's so so different from other countries so the the the, the gun rights movement for example the number of assassinations throughout the 20th century the cult of violence i mean as we speak there's an american football match uh taking place even american sports seem to be defined by violence Sure, and in the 19th century, it would have been boxing, right? Um, as you know, for for that for that culture of culture of violence, and and so the answer, of course, is 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 yes, right? Then these things harken back um, to um, to I, you know I like to harken them back to uh, to the structures um, that that helped in part breed them, right? To, that that breed um, hostile racialization in in the United States um, that uphold 
white people's usually right to guns. And we see this play out after the Civil War that the, 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 the white access to guns and to the industrialization and perpetration of guns, uh, gun culture is very much right born, born, in, uh, born in the United States, but it's very particular too. Um, it, it deals with the legacy of the, the Civil War, it deals with colonization of indigenous spaces after the Civil War with, um, you know, with this in industrial technology that was uh, created and crafted right here in, in Hartford with, with Samuel Colt. Um, it does have to do with a particular brand of masculinity that you can find in other places, but that has perhaps been glorified on a global scale in the 20th century by United States popular culture in ways that haven't quite, you know, have the, had that reach from from other from other places. Um, absolutely. Uh, and of course, I, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Donald Trump, but it seems as if, in a way, he encapsulates both in his language and behavior this cult or culture of violence. Some people argue that he's an exception to the rule that he doesn't fit into the American narrative. But it seems from what you're arguing, at least in Born of Blood, Trump is a more American character than, than Joe Biden in many ways. I would have to agree with you. In fact, I think you can see a really direct line from, from Andrew Jackson and the democratization of, of, um, of the ballot uh, in the 1830s and 1840s. Um, that's when uh, white men receive uh, access to the ballot in a, in a broad way, the, um, the class-based slash property-based uh, qualifications for to the right to vote in America were dropped at those times. And from the 1830s and 1840s, long before we talk about like violent civil war, um, voting in America is about political intimidation. It's about public intimidation. It's about guns coming to the ballot box. It's about knives and fights during election season. Um, it's also about a lot of drinking during election season. Um, I think that uh, you know, I, I I think that that is something we see resonant um, in. in right, I was just in uh, Baton Rouge also last week. Uh, again, Huey Long is a much more than mm. perhaps a more American figure than than FDR. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a really strong, strong argument for that, particularly if you're if you're looking at the American Revolution and the 60 year span after that. Um, I think that in, in many ways, right, this this uh, this demagogic, uh, this demagogic culture that that is resting on intimidation, both kind of soft and hard um, uh, intimidation of political opponents. Yeah, absolutely. And that's maybe why the elites on the coast are so mystified by Trump that they're mystified uh, but by the elites themselves. Finally, Scott, there's a lot here to unpack. Obviously, it's controversial. You're a historian, so you know nothing is inevitable. Um, how much can be changed? What is to be done? I assume you don't much approve of a country not only born in blood, but uh, continuing in blood. How do how does one respond? Is it with reparations and acknowledgement of guilt, or are there perhaps subtler ways of addressing this and, and 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 redirecting American history from blood to something else? Sure. There's. I mean, and this harkens back to your somewhat to your question about about shame, right? Do you are you, are you supposed to feel are you supposed to feel shame? I don't even know that we're at that point yet. I still think I still think that we're still battling. Over, over the 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 ability to at least acknowledge the history 
um, which for me would be a first step, right? I, I already see the the comments on on social media about about the book and and about you know kind of tearing down uh, white leadership and and those types of things. And it's just like I, I actually just think one we need to be able to acknowledge um, the history and and the truth about some of these some of these events and some of these institutions. Um, but then it does come, right? What how what is the way what is the way forward? Like how do you start to have um, uh, moments of, of, of healing. And, and one, I think the idea of healing can, can be, is challenging, um, to, to a lot of people. Uh, and the idea of guilt, of course, is, is, is very challenging to, to a lot of people. Um, I think it's better to focus on making a, uh, you know, making movements towards, towards equity. Um, and, and that can be, mean a lot of different things, uh, whether it be gender equity or racial equity, um, or economic equity. I mean, the United States is now a world leader in in economic inequality, which you know has shot up in the last uh, sixty years. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit, and, so, and I think just finally thinking this thing through, one of the ironies of all this, there's so many ironies, of course, is that it's the the mystification, particularly of Black Americans, with violence. That is another way of compounding the culture of violence. Well, we know that Black Americans, being the um, the casualties of violence from the assassination—I mean, obviously from slavery to the assass to the to the KKK to the assassinations in the '60s to Floyd and blah blah blah—and yet it's with people like Trump who uh, fetishize other people's violence that the culture of violence is maintained. Sure. And, and so it's, there's a good question here. And this is one of the interventions I, I'm able to make in the book, because we have had, at least since the 1980s in the United States, a really good investigation right into cult, like violent cultures um, from, from the medical field, right? And, and medical studies and, and thinking through um, how do you disrupt cycles of violence and right it's it's about de-escalation and i ha i have to say not not that we want to talk about him but uh donald trump is the opposite of de-escalation right he he is all about escalation and um so how do you de-escalate and and it's it's about peaceful interventions it's about conversations instead of guns um uh to start right like that's that's just a a place to start and that also that's a responsibility of politicians right of 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 trying to ratchet down um the the rhetoric and trying to have conversations even if they're difficult conversations rather than calling out for escalation and beating somebody over the head right um to to try and forge ways forward um Compromises make no one happy. This is true, um, but they may also leave no one dead, um, which may be better, right? So, um, uh, so that's that's certainly uh, certainly one of the one of the things uh, moving forward.